0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a mother of a small child and asking her some details about uh, their life together. And uh, I asked if there was uh, someone else living in the home and helping her care for the child. And she said that the father had been recently deported. And so I was about to offer sympathy and compassion for her over that, and she said to me, oh no, it's a good thing. He was uh, violent in the home and was arrested, and we're glad that not only he was arrested, but that he's not in the country. We feel much safer uh, with him gone. It made me think about the importance of the rule of law and how it is that we have uh, a prosperous Uh, country because of the rule of law. We expect that contracts will be fulfilled. We expect uh, that when we entered into this building, for instance, and we went to the city to get permits, uh, that we would simply have to apply for them and get them. There was no discussion about having to bribe some local official to get that done. Uh, it was just a matter of course that we knew the rule of law would be followed. Uh, we expect that when people are violent in their homes that uh, they will be arrested, that uh, the law will, will rule the day. And this is why we are as prosperous as we are. And if you look around the world at the prosperousness of nations, you'll see that it's based on the rule of law and not by natural uh, resources. And this is the message for the nation of Israel, especially for Ahab and Jezebel that Elijah took to them. He uh, told them that the rule of law was given to them by God, that he had a covenant relationship with them and that their willingness to follow that covenant relationship would be the source of all of their blessings. And of course Ahab and Jezebel don't hear that because they're following uh, the pagan gods of Baal uh, who teach them to follow their desires Their hearts uh, to do what feels good, to do what they think is right in their own ways. And uh, so the only law that they really understand, as people do in that situation, is violence. And so uh, they treat Elijah with violence. And this is the beginning of Elijah's ministry. What we see here tonight or this morning is the end of Elijah's ministry. So after he has constantly gone to Ahab and to the other kings, after he's constantly reminded them of the covenant relationship with God, of their importance of being in covenant with God, of following the law that he set forth, uh, his ministry is at an end. And the way that it ends is very interesting. We see Elijah and the uh, prophet that is going to be uh, taking his place, his servant Elisha, and they're walking together... And it's very interesting if you follow their path. In Gilgal, they're in the center of Judah. And you see that they go from Bethel and then they go down to Jericho, which is right in the bottom of the Jordan River Valley. You remember that's the first place that uh, the nation of Israel went and fought their first battle after they had crossed the Jordan River, if you remember that from the book of Joshua. And then they go to the uh, River Jordan and they cross over to the eastern side. And that's where the Lord takes Elijah in this whirlwind. So you see that what Elijah is doing is he is walking backwards... Oh, the the opposite direction of the way that they entered in. And if you remember, Joshua stands on that eastern shore of the Jordan River, and he once again summarizes the covenant relationship that the people have, this rule of law, if you will. And he says, uh, if you're going to enter into the promised land, and if you're going to have the blessings of this land, you have to live according to the rule of God. And the people say, oh yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And you remember Joshua says again, he says, As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, but what about you? And the people say, Oh yeah, yeah, we'll serve the Lord too, right? And so then you'll remember that they walk to the Jordan River and you remember that the priests take the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember they step into the waters of the Jordan and then the Jordan uh, parts. You remember that? And then they walk over on the dry ground. They stand in the middle of the Jordan River as the whole nation walks over the Jordan. And then you remember that they're uh, circumcised. they right in eyesight of Jericho. And then they finally, their first battle is to destroy Jericho. And the Lord says, nobody is supposed to rebuild this town. It's supposed to lay desolate. But of course it's been rebuilt, right? Because they're not following the commandments of God. And so Elijah and Elisha walk backwards. They go out of the promised land out of the place of promise back onto the left side where the people of God promised that they would live in this covenant and that's where the Lord makes this exchange and it's really important that we see the plan that God has the plan of him living uh, tabernacling uh, living with the people of God and the way that he does that you remember that first he appears to them in the the, the fiery pillar and he appears to them in the cloud you remember that he dwells in the tabernacle there in the desert You remember that when the Spirit of God comes upon them, it's not upon the whole people. He doesn't dwell upon the whole nation. You remember that His Spirit is upon Moses, and you remember the calling of the 70 prophets, and the Lord takes a portion of the Spirit of Moses from Moses, and He gives it to the 70 prophets. See, the the Holy Spirit has not come yet. The Holy Spirit isn't filling the whole people. He's dwelling with the people, but He's dwelling in this way that's giving us a vision, a picture of what's going to happen, but it's not the full dwelling of God yet with His people. He's still trying to teach them this simple understanding that if you follow the rules of God, you'll receive his blessings. And like children, they're still struggling and saying, well, we don't really want to do that, right? And you'll see that Elisha has the heart of the Spirit of God because he's not interested in talk and he's not interested in the simple kind of uh, directions that Elijah gives him. You'll notice Elijah says, you stay here. And Elisha says, no. That's very important, right? Because he's not in a simple childlike relationship with Elijah. Elisha is saying, uh, no, you've got the spirit of God and I'm not going anywhere, right? His faithfulness is to be there with God and he's not going to be just a simple uh, slave. He's not going to have this just kind of simple obedience. And you'll notice that when he walks along the path, all these sons of the prophets say, hey, do you know what's going to happen? Do you know that your master's going to go? And Elisha says, be quiet. He's not interested in talking about it. He's not interested in gossiping about Elijah. He's keeping his eyes upon Elijah, and he's saying, I'm going to watch what he does, and I'm going to go where he goes, because I know that the Spirit of God is on him. And it doesn't even matter, really, even what Elijah says. He's following the Lord, and he's going to stick as close as he can. And then what does he ask for? A double portion of the Spirit of Elijah. He's saying, I want more of God than what you have had. And he's going to stand by Elijah until that happens. And then what does he do? He takes up the mantle just as Moses had the rod that he puts upon the waters and he hits the waters again. And now they pass again back over into the promised land. And he teaches again about the dwelling of God with his people. When Jesus comes, the fulfillment of God incarnate, creator God himself, he's again teaching us how to live with God. We're now in a new covenant. We're now in a new relationship, a new understanding of how God's going to dwell with his people. But you can see that they're still really not getting it. No criticism of the holy apostles, but you can see how they're missing the boat here, right? Literally, right? You can see how the holy apostles are not quite understanding who Jesus is. Even though, if you look at the beginning of Mark chapter 6, the Lord has um, given them this... um, this power and this uh, call to teach repentance and to cast out demons and to heal and they do that in the name of the Lord, but they, yet they still don't understand who Jesus is. They're there for the feeding of the five thousand and they see this, and and Mark tells us right that they uh, that they see this, but their hearts are hardened. They're still not understanding that this is Creator God. This is God Himself who has come and is dwelling with them. So they're they're still not really understanding who Jesus is, and they're not understanding this relationship with him and you can see that they don't understand it because when Jesus says you stay here right because he's gonna send the the crowds away from the feeding of the 5,000 they leave you have to wonder when you look at these two passages and you look at Elisha and you look at the holy apostles maybe the holy apostles would have done a little bit better right to look at Elisha and to say we're not going anywhere We're sticking with you. So Jesus disperses the crowds, and what does he do? He goes apart to pray. And brothers and sisters, I put this to you. If God himself needs time to go apart and pray, how much more do we need time set apart for prayer? I put it to you that if we're not setting time aside to pray and to listen to God, we're not being the people of God. We're not desiring that closeness with Him. If we are the people of God, then we're desiring time and closeness to be a part with Him. And so, once again, Jesus shows us that He sets aside time, even though... The, the, the words of Mark are this kind of freight train that's moving so quickly, so, so fast. One thing happens after another. Mark's favorite word is immediately. He uses it like 70 times. Immediately Jesus does this. Immediately he does that. And yet in the midst of this, this forward freight train of Jesus' ministry, he takes this time aside and he prays. Meanwhile, the apostles get in the boat and they go to the other side. I put it to you again, they might have done better to be like Elisha because here they are on their own strength trying to row across in the middle of the night and they are making zero progress. Can anybody relate to this other than me? Huh? Trying to do something without the Lord? Working all night and feeling like I'm not getting anywhere? Am I the only one? This is what happens when we try to do things apart from God, when we try to do things without that time in prayer to discern His will. Right? We're struggling to do this work without Him. And Jesus is going to walk right by them. And this is when they get astounded and they get frustrated. They start to feel helpless and hopeless and and like we can't do this anymore. And once again, this is the place where we get to, right? When we try to do things on our own, we try to do it without this time in prayer to reflect upon the Lord. Not only do we start to get frustrated, but we start to feel hopeless. Like nothing's going to get better. Nothing's going to work. There's nothing that I can do, right? This is the point where St. Paul says, uh, yeah, we've all felt that way, and there's an answer to that sorrow. There's an answer to that hopelessness, and it is to experience the love of God in Christ. The only antidote to that feeling of helplessness or hopelessness is to experience the love of Christ that we have when we take that time away to pray, to allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, and to receive the sacraments of His body and blood. He promises to come and to be with us and dwell with us, because after this, this period of time when Jesus is with the apostles, what happens? Pentecost, and now the Holy Spirit is living in us and dwelling in us, and now He is tabernacling with His people. He is coming and living with us within our very hearts. Do you see how when He comes with Jesus that's that huge step forward and now the Holy Spirit comes and this is an even a more miraculous step forward because now God Himself is living within us. Do you see how amazing that is? And St. Paul uses two metaphors to describe this to us. He says here's one metaphor. The Gentiles have become heirs of the promise of God. What's an heir? That means if God uh, incarnate of Jesus is the, the fulfillment, of he's the heir of the kingdom of God, then we are fellow heirs. We get all the promises that Jesus gets. So that's the metaphor, right? There's the king, and there's the crown prince who is Jesus, and you get to be an heir with Jesus. You get to sit with him on the throne. That's a pretty great metaphor, isn't it? For living with God. You're not only in the castle, you're not only in the throne room, you're not only in the presence of the King, but you're sitting right on the throne with Him. Is that close enough for you? Here's an even closer metaphor. He says you're members of the body. Christ is the head, and you are feet and hands and the big toe. Is that close enough for you? We are members of the same body when we live in love. And St. Paul says that, that love when we're grounded in love it will strengthen us all the way to our inner being you know your inner being that inner being that's when once again it's late at night and it feels like we've been trying everything we know how to try we've done everything we know how to do and there's still that little part of us that says this isn't working I don't know what to do that's that little tiny, very center of our hearts that the Lord will fill with His love and pour forth His grace. And that's the part that He promises to heal and to strengthen so that we can do His work. And He says it will be grounded in love so that we have strength, so that we will understand. And He says that the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. See, we sometimes we get caught up and we say, I want to know how God is going to do this. I want to know how He's going to do that. I want to know what His plan is for this. I want to know what His plan is for that and we get caught up in all this ridiculous head knowledge thinking that if I memorize all the laws or I memorize all these things of God that I'll somehow know him better and it doesn't work that way that's not the way real knowledge works real knowledge is found in love this is why Jesus says do you want to know what the commandments say it's really complex love God and love your neighbor that's how we get an understanding. There are so many laws, there are so many ways of looking at them, but when we have love, all the laws fulfilled. How is that possible? Because if I sit there and I think, oh, wait a minute, you've got a car that I like, I need to try not to like that. You've got a spouse that I like, I've got to try not to want that. I want to call you names and ridicule you and call you a fool, but I'm not supposed to do that right? I'm so, I want to spend my Sundays the way I want to spend them. Oh, but I'm not supposed to do that. None of that works. But if we love our neighbor, then I want you to have all those good things. I want you to have that new car. I want you to have that new job. I want you to have a wonderful marriage. I want you to have all these wonderful things. My desire for for you out of love is to have all these wonderful things. The idea of calling somebody that I love deeply a name, that's ridiculous. Who's going to use my mother's name or my wife's name, my children's name as a swear word? I would never do that because of my love for them. It's ridiculous to even think so. That is how love makes the commandments seem ridiculous. Ridiculous. I don't need to be reminded not to murder them. I love them and want good things for them. Do you see how love surpasses all understanding and knowledge? When we have love... This is what's so sad about this dad that lost his family. Because he didn't have love for them and because he was aggressive and violent, because that was his language, because he didn't have love for them, he lost them. He lost them. What could be worse? What could be more grotesque? Then because we're not living a life of love, we lose and are separated from that which we hold and should hold most dear but that's what sin does and it's not because the law says this is your punishment but that's the natural course when we don't live in love we are separated from that which is life we are separated from that which we hold most dear all knowledge is found in love all the commandments are found in love Christ dwelling in our innermost being is found when we are with him and serve him and seek him and will not be sent away or to stand on the sidelines because of the desire of our hearts in love. May we walk with him this day and forevermore in love.